0: the uh, text for today's message. We're preaching through the book of John and uh, into it there, John chapter 2. Let's read verse 1 through 11 as we uh, take a look at uh, this first miracle. I entitled the message, Six Water Pots of Stone. And So let's stand together as we read this uh, from John chapter 2, verse 1 through verse uh, 11. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. When they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. There were set six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus said unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, But the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when the men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus and Cain of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. And Our Heavenly Father, we come before your presence today, and we thank you for the, uh, the testimony of miracles. We thank you for what they mean and what they uh, signify in the lives of disciples. We ask your blessing on the reading of the word now, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's remain standing for our, first, uh, our next hymn. to John chapter 2, once again, verse 11, verses, the six water pots of stone. Six water pots of stone. John's gospel, as we have learned, uh, concerns itself mainly with the last three years of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The three years of the end of his life were his public ministry. But this uh, passage we've been uh, reading, looking at today, concludes the end of the first week of his public ministry. It closes with this wedding that we have read about. This is... uh, likely a relative of, uh, humanly speaking, of the Lord Jesus, uh, his mother, humanly speaking. Mary is there, and he's been invited. All his disciples have been invited. It's apparently a relative uh, that is getting married at this time. And, and uh, the Eastern Wedding is, uh, is a uh, notable event. It's a time of feasting. It's a time of celebration, and it's a time that often lasted for several days as they gathered together, traveling the way they did and they, with the difficulties of back and forth, it, uh, it, isn't, um, it, it isn't difficult to understand how that they wouldn't want to come and uh, go to a 45-minute wedding and then turn around and go back, you know, 100 miles home again. So, so there was a time of gathering, a time of family, a time of fellowship, a time of feasting, uh, a time to uh, enjoy the opportunity to see the young couple off right. And so this was the occasion here. Um, Uh, By the time the Lord had arrived, the refreshment had run dry, the wine had run out, and the wine had been exhausted. Uh, And so we'll take a look at the significance of all of this and see what it means to us today. Why is this story, why is this account in here, and what does it mean to us today? You see, first of all, the place of the first miracle, uh, this chosen place of the first miracle, it almost would, uh, would seem as though uh, our Lord Jesus did not intend for this uh, miracle to be to happen here as he rebuked Mary, but we'll see the significance of that as we go down through the message today. But the place was a place called Cana. It's sort of an obscure place. If you look on your map in your Bible and you come to the top of the, the Sea of Galilee and you go west from there toward the Mediterranean Sea, about a third of the way into that uh, barren area is the place called Cana. Uh, Cana of the, uh, of the state of the area called Galilee. And this uh, place was where the first miracle uh, happened. The first miracle took place that the uh, Lord Jesus uh, performed. It's notable for its obscurity. One would uh, think that if we were humanly planning and preparing this, that we would want our Lord Jesus to be in the capital, that we would want him to be among the dignitaries, that we would want him to be in a place where lots of people would see the miracle and, and uh, be awed by that. In the, and so we would put him in Jerusalem, and we would put him there on a high day. We would have him on the Sabbath. We would have him in a place where a lot of people uh, could be wowed by the miracle. But our Lord Jesus Christ didn't pick such a place or such a time as that. He takes an obscure little village far from Jerusalem, far from the center of religion and the center of governing power, and, and uh, there we see him perform his first miracle. You see, Jesus was not seeking to impress crowds by his power. He was not seeking to impress people. Uh, Herod was an example of what people wanted to see. You know, the Bible tells us that Herod uh, had uh, the desire to see some miracle of uh, John the Baptist and see something done by him that was miraculous. And the, uh, the uh, Jewish leaders w- wanted to see Jesus from time to time only to see if he would perform some miracle. And so it was more of a sense of the want of entertainment that you get from the uh, desires of the Jewish leaders there to see a miracle. Our Lord Jesus was not interested in performing miracles for the sake of entertaining people none of the miracles that he ever did had to do with uh, that they were all meeting needs that uh, people had so he was here in this place of obscurity and it indicates to us that he was one among common people he we see that they were not uh, you know the elite the wealthy here they had planned a wedding and they had more guests show up than they had provisions for and they'd run out of wine for this wedding. Obviously, these were not uh, independently wealthy folks. They were common people, and this uh, place that they were at was a common place. The occasion is this wedding of this young couple. The indication here is that our Lord's present here at this place gives the sense that God places His blessing and signifies His, his uh, blessing on the institution of marriage. We understand that, uh, of course, from the beginning of the Bible after all the first wedding officiant was the Lord himself and when he married Adam and Eve and called Adam out of the uh, called Eve out of the bone of Adam and and brought them together and they twain shall be one flesh he pronounced them man and wife and called their name Adam and so uh, we certainly see the blessing of God indicated here on the idea of a, a wedding and in the book of Hebrews, God said it this way. He said, marriage is honorable in all. Marriage is honorable in all. So as, despite the fact that our culture has uh, begun to um, turn its back on the traditional family, traditional wedding, that doesn't make it any less the important and any less significant that our Lord Jesus Christ put his blessing on uh, on the wedding. And so... Uh, and on the marriage relationship. The plan of God for the family is for all the good of society. Any culture that abandons the nuclear family, the idea of a dad and mom and children, any culture that abandons that concept isn't very long before it begins to denigrate and uh, begins to separate and begins to fall apart. Civilization's rise and fall and one of the factors that greatly contributes to the fall of any civilization is the ruin and the wreck of the family of course the family begins on a day like this one that jesus was a part of the family begins with a wedding that time of significance and so we have that we have the place of the wedding in cana and we have the occasion of the first miracle uh, the wedding itself but then we see the plea of Mary, the plea of Mary in verse 3. She says to, the, uh, to her son, to the Lord Jesus, she says, they have no wine. She had not yet seen a miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ up to this point, because this is the first one he has performed. But she knew, Mary knew from the time he was born, from the time the angel had visited her, that this was the Son of God. She understood that. She recognized that. She kept all these things and pondered them in her heart, the Bible says. So though she had not yet seen the hand of Jesus perform a miracle, she understood that the Lord Jesus Christ had command of even nature itself. And she knew that he could immediately meet the need if he so desired. But we see our Lord return what appears to be a pretty severe rebuke to her, it would think, sort of harsh, um the way it's worded there, woman, what have I to do with thee? It doesn't call her mother. He doesn't call her Mary. He just says, woman, what have I to do with thee? I know I know, some of you men believe it's scriptural for you to address your wife that way when you're upset with her, but you're not Jesus, and so you probably shouldn't try that. <laughs> and uh, that was for a former generation, a former time, and a former place. And so uh, let's call her honey, uh, sweetheart, <laughs> darling, you know. Uh, Let's be careful about that. But our Lord Jesus says, woman, what have I to do with thee? What did uh, God put that in the scripture for? Well, I think one of the things that you'll find significant about it is that it is, a, it is, a, uh, it is going to serve future generations lest they be tempted to exalt Mary above her station lest they be tempted to put Mary in a position she did not want and did not have. Uh, Woman, what have I to do with thee? The sense that Jesus is communicating here is that Mary, as godly as she is, as wonderful a mother as she was to the Lord Jesus, as good of a Christian as she is, she is not, she is not to be elevated and called the queen of heaven. She's not to be elevated and prayed to. She's not to be elevated and made to be something she's not. She is not the mediatrix between man and Christ. She's not the one to whom we should go and beg her to take our petitions to Jesus, uh, who is angry with us in in this uh, theology that... uh, Promotes this idea that Jesus is angry with us. He would never listen to us. He would never want to talk to us. He can't stand us. And so, Mary, would you go to Jesus and beg him to take care of this position, uh, this petition that I have, because I know you have sway with him, you have influence with him? Mary would be mortified at such an elevation of herself to that position, which uh, certainly was entirely unbiblical. Mary, from the beginning, recognized the need of Jesus to be her Savior. She said, my soul hath magnified God my Savior. If Mary is without sin and born a virgin and so on like this, uh, and is the co-redeemer and is the queen of heaven, Mary certainly doesn't need to be redeemed herself. She doesn't need a Savior herself if she is The co-redeemer, obviously, the scripture does not put her in that position. The queen of heaven that you read about in the Bible was a pagan deity that was worshipped by pagan uh, populations. And so uh, for Mary to be placed in that position was a a reproach to her and a a disrespect of her her true uh, position as a good and godly young woman who loved the Lord and wanted to follow him. So, woman, what have I to do with thee is placed in our Bibles to help us, to remind us that this woman, good as she is, is a sinner that needs a Savior, just like you and just like me. And so it would serve for that uh, important purpose, this plea of Mary. Now, along with that statement, he said, woman, what have I to do with thee? He also makes a second statement uh, that is curious as well. And you might wonder why he would say This, following what he said to Mary in verse 4, he said, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. It's connected with what he's just said to her. It's connected with what Mary has asked of him. They have no wine. And he says, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. What is the significance of that? Mine hour is not yet come. What is he speaking about? His hour is not yet come. Well, we find it revealed as we read on in our Bible, and we know know what it is in John 17 and verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven. By John 17, we're coming close to the time of the cross. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son may also glorify thee. So the hour that he's speaking of here to Mary, mine hour is not yet come. My time is not yet come. It has come by the time we reach John chapter 17. And that hour is that period of time from the garden of Gethsemane Gethsemane, until the point on the cross at which he utters those final words, it is finished. He gives up the ghost and goes into the presence of the Father over that period of time. His hour is the hour of suffering. The hour that is not yet come when he speaks to Mary is that hour that he knows he has come to the world for. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to give his life a ransom for many, for you, for me, for you here who have not yet trusted him as your Savior. He's given his life a ransom for you. He's taken your place. He's paid your price. He's shed his blood in the place of yours. And So he is referring to that hour that he would enter into suffering which would begin in the garden of Gethsemane as he fully bore the weight of the reality that he would soon be made sin for us. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. His suffering began there in the garden of Gethsemane as he sweat as it were great drops of blood because of the intensity of the, uh, the realization of what would take place. 2 Corinthians re- records it. He said he hath made him, Paul said he hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So his hour was that hour which he would become, that he would be made sin for us. The one who knew no sin, the one who had never tasted the bitter cup of the dregs of the wrath of God, the one who would now endure that wrath on Calvary's cross, the one who would be forsaken by the Father, the one who would cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And as the heavens blackened, as the Father turns His back on His beloved Son, He bears the full weight of your sins and my sins on Calvary's cross. That was the hour that he's referring to. That was the time that was coming. And Mary makes that statement of that question. They have no wine. This would bring our Lord Jesus Christ uh, into the state of mind. that would remind him what the significance of the wine represented. This wine, uh, this fruit of the vine that he would later set aside and declare to be representative of His own blood shed for us. So as Mary spoke of that issue, they have no wine. He understood it in much more deep sense than she did. They have no wine. They have no wine. There's no sacrifice for sin. There's, uh, there's no offering to, to, uh, to satiate the wrath of God for sin. And they have no wine was a lot more significant to Jesus than It was to Mary at that time, you see. And so he says to her, Mine hour is not yet come. And Mary takes her rebuke very well. Many of us don't receive rebuke well at all. We men do not like to be rebuked by our wives, we don't appreciate that. And and, uh, most of the time, 99% of the time, they're right. But uh, you know, we dwell on that one time, they missed it. And uh, we don't like to be rebuked by our wives. Uh, Ladies don't like to be rebuked by their husband. Children don't enjoy the rebukes that must come from mother and father and grandma and grandpa and whoever else is standing around in their way. <laughs> no one likes initially likes re- rebuke, and often we re- re- react to it the wrong way, don't we? We react to rebukes often the, the opposite way of what we should. We, we put up our walls, we put up our defenses, we make excuses, we, uh, we do anything we can to deflect the, uh, the pain of the rebuke, and deny the reality of the rebuke but uh, that doesn't do us anything but more difficulty and so uh, i'm appreciative of mary's response she she gave no excuse she didn't say well that hurts she didn't say why why do you say woman what have i to do with thee i'm the one who brought you humanly speaking into the world she doesn't come up with any of that she uh, you know she doesn't do that uh she She chooses her words well, and the next thing that she says after being rebuked by the Lord Jesus, she turns to the servants and says to them, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. That is a good response to rebuke. To say, Lord, whatever you say unto me, I'm going to do it. And you'll never go wrong if you follow Mary's counsel in that, when, whenever he says something to you through his word, if you just do it, you'll never go wrong. And so she spoke that word to the servants, and they uh, followed her counsel. And we come then to the to the pots of water that we see uh, that we have made an account of the pots of water. These were used for uh, travelers and for guests. Uh, they were set. There were six of them there in that place that they'd set aside. They were carved out of stone. They you can, see, um, you can see old uh, ancient uh, examples of them. If you uh, go, to the, uh, go to the Holy Land, go to the Middle East, they still use them in some places. And these six water pots of stone, and uh, uh, they were there. They contained two or three firkins apiece. And so I thought, well, that's a funny word, firkins, two or three firkins, you know. And so I thought, what's a firkin uh, represent? It's about nine gallons, they say, somewhere around nine gallons so two or three firkins is you know somewhere around 20 25 gallons something like that 18 to 25 gallons 27 gallons maybe at the most 18 at the least and so um, so we have uh, these water pots brought a number three wash tub I don't know if you can see it well but it's a number three wash tub there and uh, that's about the size of uh, these water pots of stone that that contains two or three firkins right there um that's quite a bit of water there and they filled them to the brim i mean they these servants got it you know they understood they didn't just say well we'll, we'll fill it up a little ways they said something big's going to happen here let's fill these babies up to the brim you know <laughs> and they filled them up to the brim that number three wash tub is a good represent, representation of that because that this vessel it it isn't i mean you don't put uh the fruit of the vine in that it's a What they used it for was, you know, they'd come in and there'd be water and they'd wash their feet in it. They'd wash their hands in it. It was for purifying. It says after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, that's what they used it for. Some of you used it. Some of you old timers used it for the same thing. I know Brother John Church come out of West Virginia, out of the hills of West Virginia. And I know that Brother Church took baths in a number three wash tub (laughs) when he's a kid, you know. He took baths and they're pretty regular there, you know. He wouldn't fit anymore, obviously. that'd be an image that we couldn't unsee if we saw it so we're glad we're glad for that it's just a memory uh, an ancient memory in the hills of west virginia as grandma pulled out the number three wash tub and filled it up with water that she'd heated up on the stove and brother church took his bath that saturday night bath before church on sunday it happened and so but that's that's what it was for that wash tub number three wash tub was for washing stuff you know and this was still for us for washing stuff and uh and that is a water pot of stone. That's what he chose, these these water pots of stone. These uh, traveling gift would, uh, guests would come in, and they would be uh, refreshed by the opportunity to uh, cleanse themselves with these uh, water pots of stone. And and uh, they would work their way through them, because the first one would be the dirtiest, and then they would work their way, and by the time you got to the end, you were quite clean, you know, and, and that And so uh, you read a lot in the Bible about vessels like this. You see a number of uh, occasions when the vessel is used as an image of something, a representation, a picture of something. You see a lot of that in the Bible. You see that the Bible says things about vessels unto honor and vessels unto dishonor. And he explains it there. He said there's in a great house, there are many vessels, some to honor and some to dishonor. And then in that passage in uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy that he talks about that, he says we have the opportunity to be a vessel unto honor even if we uh, initially were a vessel unto dishonor. He says we have that opportunity. He tells us how by uh, submitting ourselves to the will and purpose of the Lord and doing His will, we can become, we can be made a vessel unto honor. This goblet here it's not for cleaning our uh feet or you know washing our hands in it's for drinking the fruit of the vine you know it's for drink it's for a uh, refreshing drink a life giving drink it's a its purpose is that it's a vessel made unto honor and um this vessel is a vessel that the Bible refers to as a made unto dishonor it doesn't mean it's Bad in the sense that it's dishonorable. It just means it's not something we would eat out of or drink out of. It's something we'd wash with. It has a purpose, you know. We have vessels called garbage cans in our houses, and we certainly wouldn't say they were vessels under honor. We would call those vessels under dishonor, we take all the dishonorable dis- discards and put them in there, take them out to the garbage when we do that. But it has a purpose as a vessel. So there's vessels under honor, vessels under dishonor. There's The Bible speaks of clean vessels and it speaks of dirty vessels. The scripture speaks of full vessels and empty ones. The scripture tells us of earthen vessels and stone vessels and brass and silver and gold vessels and all have a purpose. The scripture reminds us of marred vessels and broken vessels. The scripture certainly is filled with illustrations of vessels and vessels under dishonor. You don't want to really be a vessel under dishonor, do you? Then. The thing is, let's do what the scripture says and be a vessel unto honor. A vessel unto dishonor is going to receive things that are dirty, you know, and nasty and gross. And a vessel unto dishonor is going to take those things in through the eye gate or the ear gate. A vessel unto dishonor is going to be filled with garbage. And, of course, the only thing you can get out of a vessel that's filled with garbage is garbage. You don't take your trash can out and, you know, dump it in the big dumpster and think that there's a lot of good stuff going to come out after you put bad stuff in. It's just garbage, you know. I have a friend, Bobby Lassiter. He's in high school, and he was in Texas. Some of you Texas people can relate to this. He, like so many silly Texans, chewed tobacco, you know. I, I don't understand. I wish Brother Beavers had quit. But uh, <laughs> uh, but he chewed tobacco, you know, and he's in high school, and he's, you know, being cool and everything, chewing tobacco. And, and so uh, he had a date for Friday night. He, he, um, what tobacco chewers do if they're tobacco chewers and truck drivers, they'll have a can like a Folgers coffee can on the, right on the flat part. You remember that, Brother Beavers, used to do that. <laughs> so, had uh, Folgers coffee can right in the middle where the shift, uh, where the gear shift is, right between the gear shift and the, the front uh, uh, of, the, um, uh, of the cab there. And they would spit in that, you know, They'd spit in that, They'd spit in that, spit in that. That was a vessel in the dishonor, wasn't it? A vessel in the dishonor. Well, that can of his was about three-quarters full. He needed to dump it, but he hadn't gotten around to it. He picked up his date, uh, you know, and they headed out to, to uh, eat, and she was all dressed up pretty and everything. And uh, a rabbit, a jackrabbit, ran out in the road, you know, in front of him. He jerked that wheel of that pickup, and you know what happened. That vessel under dishonor tipped over and covered her feet, her shoes, her nylons, ruined the, the date, obviously. He, <laughs> he didn't take her to the restaurant. He took her back home again, and, that, and he never... She never went out with him again after that. Uh, so but that vessel under dishonor, that vessel under dishonor, you know I'm talking about that. I can see Joy had the same experience uh, early on with, <laughs> with, uh, with brother beavers, but uh, yeah that that thing had nothing but grossness in it because that was all that was put in and grossness was going to come out of it and it was going to get on whoever was around. I'm telling you the Bible makes it clear that if we uh, want to serve him, if we want to honor the Lord, if we want to have the life that we uh, should desire, we need to seek the uh, the Lord's help in being a clean vessel, being a vessel unto honor, being filled as the Lord would have us to be filled. That's what He instructed those uh, servants to do. He said, "Fill the vessels," and they filled the vessels to the brim. He, they followed implicitly followed His instructions, and and uh, then He said, "Next thing I want you to do, servants, is just draw out what's there now." and bear it, take it, carry it to the governor, the ruler of the feast, the guy in charge of uh, the refreshments. Take it to him and give it to him. So we are given the same responsibility. We are servants of the Lord as well. We have that same opportunity. And here he tells us that we have vessels. He said these vessels are, he calls them earthen vessels, prone to breakage, prone to cracks, prone to problems, earthen vessels. So we're... Uh, earthen vessels, but we can be a vessel under honor. So he says to us, as we think about our lives, our uh, hearts, our minds, our beings as vessels, he says to us, I want you to be filled with the Spirit. And so he says, take that vessel and fill it to the brim. I want you to be filled with the Spirit. And then he says, along with that, he says, as that occurs, things happen like you begin to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You begin to live different and act different. The Spirit begins to have control of what you're looking at, where you're going, what you're saying, what your speech is like, and the Spirit of God is making a difference in this vessel. He's making it a vessel unto honor. So he tells us what we're to be filled with. He says something else we're to be filled with as well. He said we ought to be filled up to the brim with the words of christ with the word of god that's what he wants us to keep putting in putting in putting in and so he tells us how to do that to commit to memory the scriptures as we uh as we go i want to tell you young people the more years goes by the more uh, difficult it is for you to commit anything to memory even your name sometimes slips so so uh so please, uh, while you're young, uh, commit as much as you can of the Scripture to memory. Work on it and do it. It's so much easier when you have the presence of all of your faculties. You know, it's so much easier than it is for some of us who have, uh, you know, gone over the top and are, are are gliding down the other side. You know, we're we're grasping on to memories of long ago when we have the Scriptures that we memorized long ago, but. As we work on memorizing them and continue, as we should do as we get older, we we find it much more uh, challenging than we did when we were young. And so I encourage you to, to do that, to be filled not only with the Holy Spirit, but filled with the Word of the Spirit, the Word of Christ, the Word of God. Be filled that way. Then the other thing he told the servants to do is the same thing he tells us to do. He says, now I want you to take what you're filled with and draw it out and bear it to others. Bear it to the governor of the feast. Bear it to the people that are there. Bear it to the common folks. Take what God's given you and give it out to others. See, that's the purpose that the servant is there for. He's, he's not there to be entertained. The servants weren't there to, you know, uh, have j- just the, the good time. They were there to serve. And you and me are, uh, are not here to, to see what kind of entertainment that we can produce we're here to serve, and so we're given that opportunity. What a blessing it is to be on that! Because you see, the servants got to be in on things that nobody else knew about. The Bible says, you know, when they bore the when they bore the the wine to the to the to the governor of the feast, uh, that uh, he did not know where it came from. But there's a parenthesis there, isn't there? He said, "But the servants knew. <laughs> the servants knew something that the governor didn't know." And you know, that's true of you and me. The servants of Christ are blessed with insights that even the governor doesn't know about. <laughs> uh, what, a, what a thrill that is that they, they knew all about it, and they they got it. They understood that. Well, there's, a, there's the quantity that is given there, too. The Bible says that uh, there are six water pots of stone containing two or three firkins apiece, which would be 18 to 27 gallons apiece. So if you take the middle average of that and work it all out, you come up with about 135 gallons of wine that the Lord Jesus... Christ added to that uh, ceremony, and uh, some would say, "Well, was that intoxicating beverage?" And of course, the answer is absolutely not. The Bible uh, does not uh, does not ever condone the consumption of alcoholic beverages, and this is one occasion that. Uh, those that imbibe use as an excuse to condone uh, alcohol consumption but i want to tell you something you're not reading your bible uh right you uh, need to understand that absolutely not i mean common sense itself would tell you that but uh, let me give you some other insights on that the bible does speak of both alcoholic and non-alcoholic fruit of the vine the scripture certainly makes it clear and you need to look at the context to understand which one it is, you know, wine, the, the, uh, look not upon the wine when it moveth itself aright, when it giveth its color in the cup. You understand that, and then you ha- have the description of who, uh, what people are like who drink that and where, what they, you know, how the world spins around and how they vomit and how they don't know where they are and don't care what uh, happens to them. You understand, of course, that obviously is alcoholic consumption, alcoholic wine, uh, and in other passages, you see the fruit of the vine still being called wine, which uh, it, is, it is accurate. Uh, one, of the, one of the states of wine is non-fermented, uh, the non-fermented state. So it is an accurate use of, of the word. But uh, that is uh, the case here. What was produced here was 135 gallons of the most pure, the most perfect, the most sweet, the most cold, the most refreshing fruit of the vine that anyone had ever tasted. W.H. Jeff Coates writes this. He says, historical evidence affirms that even the lower alcoholic content of fermented wine in biblical times was not widely available or even preferred in Palestine. Again, he says this, another paragraph. He says, historical evidence, including archaeological discoveries, verify that both fermented and unfermented wines were known by ancient peoples. Further, unfermented wine was preferred and far more popular. Another researcher, Samuel Bakioki, documented four different ways that ancient people preserved unfermented grape juice for long periods of time. So four different methods that they could have used, they could use, they did use to preserve unfermented grape juice, non-alcoholic wine, if you will, for long periods of time, and it was even preferred over the uh, intoxicating kind. But By the way, the intoxicating kind that you're talking about there in biblical times was about 4% to 8% alcohol content compared to the way they distill today. Distilleries weren't even known until the 9th and 10th centuries, so... Distilling wines, distilling uh, liquors was not a practice that was known at all. There were no distilleries, you know, if you will. Uh, And so the content of alcoholic wine today is far, far, far higher than even the alcoholic wine of the biblical times. And and yet the the, uh, practices of uh, preserving the fruit of the vine in an unfermented state were well known. And, you know, common sense alone should tell you that the Savior would not add 135 gallons of intoxicating beverage to a group of men who had already well drunk, had already been filled with all of the uh, wine there. And it was intoxicants before, and and now he's going to add to it and make it a real orgy. <laughs> you know, common sense. Where Where is the common sense that uh, you need to apply to the scriptures when you read them? You know, you need to understand that. And and so common sense alone tells us, tells us that the Savior would have provided a a, what and what historians even secular historians refer to the best wines being those unfermented those that don't mess with the mind you know Uh, that that even even secular writers plutarch uh plato and and others wrote of the uh, superiority of the unfermented fruit of the vine, and so it is certainly not something that is without merit when we talk about the fact that what jesus Christ is providing here is the most perfect and pure and sweet and tasty and fresh fruit of the vine that any one had ever tasted and so my friend, uh, you have here some great uh, practical lessons for us in our life. And we have here some great practical ways which we, if we call ourselves a servant of the Lord, need to follow. We need to take Mary's advice. We need to take Mary's counsel. And, and what she said, remember, was whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And so I want to encourage you to, uh, to do that. The last thing that he says in this passage is that when the disciples saw the miracle that he did, they believed on him doesn't mean that they received Him right there because we read previously that they had trusted Him as their Savior. They had followed Him. They had thrown in with Him. They were believers. They were disciples. But what it's referring to here is that their faith was now growing. Their faith was growing as, a, as an evidence of what Jesus, uh, that Jesus was all He claimed to be. And so, my friend, our faith needs to grow as well. As we Don't we experience this in a different sense, the miracles that God performs uh, in our lives uh, every day? Uh, Life itself is a miracle, you know. The new birth is a miracle. Being a child of God when you were a child of the devil is a miracle. And so uh, thank God that every time Jesus uh, puts his hand on something, a miracle does occur. And my friend, there's the opportunity for you today. If you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, there needs to be a miracle take place in your life. You need to come and, and let the hand of God touch you and be born again. You need to come in repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. You just need to simply trust Him as your Savior, call on Him, and He'll do the miracle part. He'll do the miracle part. He's just waiting for you to say, I do, I do, I will. And then, Christian, you and me, God help us to be a faithful servant in bearing the water to those that need it, bearing the water made wine, life-giving fruit of the vine, bearing that to those that need it. And so uh, let me encourage you as a Christian to examine your own uh, walk with the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, uh, help me to be faithful, more faithful as a servant. Let's stand together, give an invitation. If you need to come, I want to encourage you to take that step of uh, faith if you're not saved yet and trust Christ as your Savior. We'll show you out of the Bible how to how to call on Christ, how to be saved. We'll show you other scriptures. If you come and you haven't trusted Jesus yet, somebody helped us, somebody helped me, somebody helped everybody that's in here that's a Christian, somebody helped them to see how to call on Christ, how to be saved, and so we'll help you. Well, have, As a man comes, we'll have a man take you... Uh, to the side room there and and show you right out of the Bible in a few moments how to call on Christ, how to be saved, how to know you're a child of God, how to be born again. And um, then if it's a lady comes, we'll have a lady do the same as well. There'll be some Christians that'll come and they'll use the altar uh, as a place to pray. Perhaps there's Christians here that you believe, uh, you know, God is uh, leading you to unite with the fellowship of our church. And maybe that's your decision. I'd encourage you to come and let us know that and and, uh, take that uh, step of identification Maybe you're here and you have been saved, but you haven't been baptized biblically. I mean, biblically, you might have got sprinkled or poured on or something like that, but you never been—you never got the real thing. That's the Baptist baptism, and I want to encourage you to come and say, you know, I need to take that step of obedience and follow. I have three young ladies to be baptized tonight, and uh, maybe uh, there's someone else here that needs to uh, get that taken care of. It's a step of obedience that'll help you grow in your faith. It'll—it'll it'll help you. Uh, in your walk with God, if you just obey him. Now, you know, Mary's good advice applies there, too. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And uh, that's one of the things he saith. He saith to follow him a believer's baptism. And so I encourage you to do that. If you haven't, let's uh, have a, uh, a word of prayer. We'll have a verse 2 of invitation, and uh, then uh, we'll... Uh, Uh, get on with the uh, potluck and the other things that we have scheduled so father we ask your blessing on the invitation time we pray for those that need to respond in whatever way we pray for those that may be here that haven't trusted you as savior especially god that you'd save them today that you'd reach down from heaven and touch their heart and draw them to yourself and uh, bring them into the kingdom help them to respond in willingness to come and and trust you and lord i pray for those that need a church home, and should guide them if this is where they're supposed to be. Show them, and if there's those that are here need to be biblically baptized, I pray that they would come. I pray for us, all of us. I pray for me and my brothers and sisters here that are servants. We just pray you'd help us to be more faithful in our service and to just do what we're supposed to do to, to keep the vessel full, to draw out, to bear to others. We ask a blessing on the invitation now in Jesus' name. Amen. 310, we're going to sing, Whiter Than Snow. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. As we sing, would you come? Would you? Lord Jesus, I, I long to be perfectly whole. I want thee forever to live in my soul. Break down and...